Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned risk management experts to Red Bull daredevils, there is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you all want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know he is well acquainted with risk. His 20-year career has seen him successfully establish operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Dominic has spent most of his career establishing large and successful operations in places like Haiti, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan and so many other high-risk and medium-risk locations. Joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. Hi, I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. In recent podcasts, we've talked a lot about ESG and corporate responsibilities that companies must take into account in their day-to-day workings. The ways in which consumers are viewing companies has changed a lot over the last couple of decades and corporate reputation is more important than ever. And reputations and brands are scrutinized so quickly and continually by consumers. To help us unpack the importance of corporate reputation, as well as the risks that companies even could incur by not upholding a positive reputation, as well as the opportunities, we're honored to be joined today by Rupert Younger. Rupert is the founder and director of Oxford University's Centre for Corporate Reputation, and he's co-authored two books, The Reputation Game and The Activist Manifesto. He may be also about to release his third book, which we might discuss and get a sneak preview at the end of the podcast. He's spoken a lot about legitimacy, status, stigma, celebrity, reputation, and trust. He's also chairing the University of Oxford Social Responsibility Investment Committee, and he's a member of the senior common rooms at Worcester College, Oxford, and St. Anthony. His college, Oxford. He's an ambassador for the international mine clearance charity, the Halo Trust, and he was appointed by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as her High Sheriff of Hampshire for 2013 to 14. So I think we've got a lot to unpack today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the International Risk Podcast, Rupert. Thank you for having me, Dominic. Considering your extensive work with corporate reputation, Rupert, how do you see the role of digital media platforms influencing public perception and reputation management today? It's kind of an intriguing question because digital platforms have dramatically accelerated the speed at which we all share information. And it's also increased the amount of echo chambers that exist. So that combination of speed and echo chambers has changed the nature of how information flows around us and about us. But the kind of interesting thing, at least from my research perspective, is that the core of what makes reputation so important remains the same. The same underlying drivers that lead to reputation capital being created and destroyed are the same as they were 2000 years ago. We'd be having a conversation in the Roman Forum 2000 years ago about the reputation of senators, and we could have exactly the same conversation today about the reputation of politicians. So it's kind of intriguing. Social media has dramatically changed certain things, in particular distribution mechanisms around information, but they haven't fundamentally changed the way in which reputations are created, sustained, destroyed, and rebuilt. 
That's particularly interesting, and I love that comparison, especially if we just look at UK politics, some of our politicians in the UK compared to the Roman Senate. That would be a lovely case study, which maybe we can unpack on another podcast. But today, when you mentioned that the speed and those echo chambers that we're all working through and about us and around us, how has the focus and the big focus that we see today on ESG impacted the way companies approach both crisis management and then also reputation recovery and reputation management when they're reputation capital is hitting an all-time low? I mean, ESG is a very complicated and an extremely large subject. The way I think it's helpful to think about ESG is to start by understanding that ESG is the what you do. It's not the question of why you do something. And when you're thinking about corporate reputations, we need to sense make the idea of why is an organization embracing a certain environmental, social, or governance norm. So, The debate about ESG, I think, should follow the debate about corporate purpose. And one of the roles that I've had since 2018 has been the chair of the Enacting Purpose Initiative, which is a multi-institution partnership between the University of Oxford, University of California at Berkeley, the British Academy and Federated Hermes and Bright House, which is a Boston consulting group company. So a combination of business or industry partners and academic research trying to get to the bottom of this question of why does purpose matter in organizations? And this question of purpose and why it matters boils down to, again, I come back to this question of the sense-making around organizations. How do we make sense of what an organization stands for is a very powerful, important anchor stone when it comes to reputation, ESG, and any of these other things. So I would start by asking the question, what does a company or an organization stand for? And that's really around the organizational purpose. It's the why do you exist? exist question. Now, the ESG questions, if they're done well, or the ESG commitments that organizations make should follow your purpose. Let me give you some examples. If I am a pharmaceutical company, for example, and my purpose is to save lives, then my commitments in ESG terms make sense when it's linked to that question of saving lives. I'm an ambassador, delighted and very honored to be an ambassador for the Halo Trust. I was a trustee of this very important charity, the Halo Trust digs very dangerous mines out of the ground all over the world, saving lives and restoring communities in the process. And it's been a real honor to be part of that. But it has an incredibly clear purpose, which is to save lives and restore the land in communities to productive use. And when you attach that to the commitments they make, it makes sense to us. They make commitments, which are ESG commitments, and they're all linked back to that core purpose. I think where organizations get in trouble is when they have commitments being made in the ESG domain, which don't seem to attach themselves to any sensible reason to exist. So if you start to do philanthropic work, so for example, if I start to support a local football club as a chief executive of a healthcare company, I think people would go, well, why is this healthcare company supporting a football club. It doesn't seem to connect to their business. It doesn't seem to link to any of their particular policies or objectives or strategies. And that's where you get this problematic discontinuity when it comes to ESG commitments. And that then leads on to reputation. So reputation damage is when you see this lack of sense-making between the purpose of an organization and the ESG commitments that they make. And equally, reputation benefits will apply and the upside will apply for the opposite. 
That's a really excellent link between the two. I haven't heard anyone explain it that way. And I think that's really useful, really aligning the purpose and the reason we exist with why we're also pursuing different ESG objectives and commitments. So thanks very much for explaining that, Rupert. You mentioned earlier the speed of which information is flowing. When you evaluate the effectiveness of reputation management strategies in this current fast-paced environment, how effective do you see the average company's reputation management strategy? Let me start off by challenging you a little bit on this question of reputation management. Those who know me will know that I have a bugbear on this one because reputation is something that is conferred on you by others. The idea that you can manage your reputation, to my mind, is really problematic because it indicates or it suggests at least that you think you have some degree of control. Now, you have control over the mechanisms by which you seek to influence your reputation, for sure. But the actual question of reputation management, I think that's an oxymoron. So, for example, my reputation here with you today rests on you. You can decide what a waste of time that podcast was. Why on earth did I agree to spend 30 minutes with Rupert? Or you could come away after it and say, actually, do you know something that was really interesting? I've learned some really interesting things. And my reputation rests on what you come away from and how you talk about this particular set of discussions. So with that caveat that reputation management, I think, is an oxymoron, you can manage your reputation engagement strategy. You can manage the influence that you try to achieve over the stakeholders who are examining and making perceptions about you all the time, whether that be your friends, your family, your co-workers, if it's an organizational reputation, and so on. The work that I've been doing over many years, both in practice, but also at Oxford, has identified three principal drivers. And the reason I think I'll start with that is because you've picked up on the speed of social media and that anchors into one of those drivers. The three drivers of reputation capital or reputation influence, and therefore anchors absolutely to your core strategy should be, first of all, your behavioral signals. If I want to be perceived as prompt by you, reliable, then I've got to actually turn up on time to our meetings. If I don't do that, no matter what I do in any other form or any other engagement, you won't believe it and the perception will not be given. Now, it seems old fashioned perhaps to think about this concept that actually you've got to do what you say you do and you've got to act in the way in which you wish to be perceived, but it remains as important today as it was back 2,000 years ago or probably 20,000 years ago. So your behavior and your behavioral signals are the first strategy. The second strategy, which is where your social media prompts perhaps come in, is in what I call network capital. Now, reputations are created through and between people. If I'm a Buddhist monk and I sit on a hill in Tibet and I've never met anyone in my life, I may have the best behavior. I may be the most brilliant Buddhist monk. But if no one knows I exist and I've never met anyone, then I have no reputation. So reputation exists in and between people. So the network properties that surround you as an organization or as an individual are super important for your reputation. Super important. And most people think of networks as being just about who do you know? And that's absolutely critical. You're known by the company you keep, for sure. But also the network properties matter. And I definitely won't go into this in any detail in this podcast, but I think it's worth touching on one really critical piece of insight. And this really draws from sociology and from the excellent work done by people who spent their life in sociology. And that's that network properties matter. So close and open networks is what I'm going to introduce you to. An open network is where you know lots of people, but you know them sort of loosely. 
right? Sort of second or third hand, lots of sort of loose or weak ties. A closed network is where you know people very, very well. You see them a lot. A classic example of a closed network might be a family. On the whole, in a family, do you think information moves fast or slow? In a healthy family, we'll say fast. Right. So you'd assume information moves fast. Critical point number one about networks and information flow. Secondly, the information within a family group, do you think that what people tell you in the family group should be trusted? Again, in a healthy family, you'd assume and hope that it is trusted. Right. So two really critical insights come from network structure. First of all, information moves super fast. And second, it moves with a high degree of confidence. You can trust the information on the whole. Now, that means that in closed networks, you can get a lot done in reputation terms because people will believe what you say and information moves super fast. It's why, for example, reputation strategies that the army deploys are done this way. So when you think about a platoon or a small unit, what you're creating is a closed network. And that closed network in an army unit, think of how important it is for information to move fast. If there's a threat, everyone needs to know and respond to it. And also you need to trust that people are telling you the truth when things are happening at pace, at speed, and with the level of danger that you exist in in army units. So this idea of an army unit is a closed network reputation body. Similarly, if I am working on a production line, and I'm looking to achieve some form of greater synergy or efficiencies in working with a very long production line, I can best do that by creating closed network reputation capital. Because what I do is I have, we're all working at different points down the line, but everyone knows that they're interdependent with the other. Everyone knows that when they're told something's happening down the line, take it seriously. Everyone knows they've got a place in the line and they don't want to upset the flow of things happening down the line. So this idea of closed networks is a really, really important part of reputation strategy. And it has meaningful corporate and organizational outcomes, personal corporate and organizational outcomes. An open network is not bad either. It's just it has different properties. Typically, if you're thinking about the creation of open networks, you're trying to open your networks, you're trying to encourage innovation, research and development, because in closed networks, often you get this sort of ignorant certainty. Everyone believes they know the answer. Everyone speaks super fast. Everyone knows the truth. But if you're trying to come up with something new, a brand new idea, you want to really a sort of group of people who aren't absolutely certain of everything all the time. So innovation tends to be propagated in these open networks. So again, reputation capital having these very, very significant organizational outcomes. So that's the second block of things. And I apologize for spending so long on it in the podcast. But actually, I think it's important to note that it's not just the company you keep. Obviously, that's important. We're all associated with people who have a certain profile, whether it be in our communities or in business, and people will judge you by a sense of who you're connected to. But this network structure point is super important. And the third and final element of the reputation strategy, the reputation influence strategy that you've asked about is your narrative, how you talk about yourself, your choice of words. We talked about the Roman Forum 2000 years ago. If you go back even further and think about Cicero, for example, You know, Cicero was a master of narrative. He was a master of creating a narrative both to promote himself, but also to denigrate his enemies. And so this choice of narratives and the way you construct narratives today is a really, really valuable part of your reputation strategy. The best example, I think, of that is this theme now of narrative simplicity. You can't get away with complicated narratives today. Probably the most powerful example of that is Trump. 
you know, he's someone who is able to cut through with very simple, repeatable phrases, and it gives him a huge amount of reputational power. So the Sleepy Joe, the Drain the Swamp, the Crooked Hillarys, these became memes. These have become really powerful, repeated memes, Ronda Sanctimonious, you know, all of this stuff. It's really interesting looking at the power of narrative simplicity. So three building blocks of reputation, your behavior, your networks, and your narratives. That's excellent. And the open and closed networks, I imagine the open networks are much larger. Should there be an attempt to try and get people from the open network into our closed networks, or do we just accept that they're different? It depends on what you're trying to do. At some points, you're going to want to increase closure in your network. So for example, if you're an organization and you're trying to build a sense of organizational purpose and teamwork, build closure. Do things like corporate away days, dinners for your senior management team, you know, that kind of stuff. That builds closure. If you're trying to think about actually you've got too much echo happening in your business and you want a bit more innovation, invite externals in, bring in speakers, broaden the network. It's a common misconception that size is a differentiator, that open or bigger than closed. It's not actually always the case. I mean, a closed network is limited by the fact that you can't have these very tight ties with too many people. But equally, open networks can be very small too. Very good. So hearing your point about how you may not manage your reputation, I wonder about how much you can control legitimacy and trust building on what you've just said. And I know in your books, you explore legitimacy and trust. So I wonder how these concepts interrelate with corporate reputation, especially in today's global marketplace. So these are a family of concepts, which we refer to as social evaluations. And in fact, I'm editing a new Oxford handbook on social evaluations, which will be out in 2025. It's going to have 40 odd chapters, which shows you the complexity of what we're talking about. These are academic chapters looking in detail at those six concepts of legitimacy, status, stigma, celebrity, reputation and trust. And each of them are very important in different ways. If you think about legitimacy, think about why has Elon Musk, someone who started off with PayPal and financial services innovation, why do we think he's legitimate in creating a space business? It's kind of an interesting, intriguing question, right? So this question of entrepreneurs, startups, that relies on some perception of legitimacy. Status, very interesting. I've just done a podcast on status and bling, which is interesting because status and status markers have been important heuristics for us as human beings for, again, thousands of years, whether it be visible displays of wealth, whether it be particular associations that we choose to either join or attend. I mean, take a look at Davos, for example. We've just had Davos. Davos is a status game for those who choose to play it. And it means things to that particular community and that particular group that you are significant enough to be someone who goes to Davos. And so status, again, confers particularly different things. Reputation is around perceptions of certain dimensions. So I may have a reputation for being strong in thinking about a particular concept, but I may have a reputation with my family as being deeply unreliable in being able to pick up my children on time. So this dimensionality of reputation is what's important. And trust is a very interesting one because I think people use trust in some very strange and loose terms. I mean, lots of people talk about trusting your bank. I mean, I'm not sure I want to trust my bank. I need my bank to do certain things at certain times, give me access to funds when I want them, not lose them, pay me back for fraud. But do I trust my bank? I think that's slightly an odd question. And in fact, if you then take it more broadly to the financial system, after the financial crash, everyone talked about that we need to restore trust in financial services. I actually would argue precisely the opposite needs to be the case because we trusted too much 
not too little. You know, we trusted the banks to know what they were doing on mortgages, and they clearly didn't. We trusted the rating agencies to know what the risk profiles were, and they clearly didn't understand it. So I'd argue that actually the pursuit of more trust in financial services is completely the wrong strategy. And we should be trying to chase trustworthiness, trying to assess that. And actually, we should probably trust less. We should be more skeptical before we start off. So these concepts have different powers, they have different dynamics, they have different drivers, and they have different meaning in different contexts. And so all these things, hopefully, have a positive connotation. We're talking about legitimacy, we're talking about trust, we're talking about positive reputations and associations and dimensions. I wonder if we can look at the other side of that around the ethical boundaries and ethical considerations when it comes to our reputation, particularly when dealing with misinformation and malinformation, and maybe even going as far as to considering, you know, how other organisations may be conducting hostile public relation campaigns, things we need to be considering on that side of the coin. Well, I mean, it's certainly the case that reputation is, or reputation strategies, influence and perception strategies can be deployed by the bad as well as the good. One of the most obvious but compelling points is that most fraudsters are extremely good at the reputation game. I spent some time interviewing Bernie Madoff for my first book, The Reputation Game, and also I interviewed Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. And when you dissect, when I look back on those conversations, these are people who really do understand the reputation game. They have a set of behavioral signals that they're very, very sophisticated in pushing forward. They play the network game brilliantly, and the narratives that they put around their particular product or the way they approach life are very, very compelling. So you're right that reputation strategies can be used by good people for good things, and they can be used by bad people for bad things. When it comes to misinformation and AI, I mean, I think we are spending quite a bit of time thinking across different parts of the University of Oxford, and I'm part of a number of these conversations about the role of mis- and disinformation in our democratic discourse. It matters for political discourse. It matters in terms of corporate and organizational perceptions and the power, of course, for bad actors to abuse the information channels by creating deep fakes or actively pushing misinformation are very significant powers and there's very significant risks actually associated with that today. The interesting thing, I think, though, is that all of these technologies, the generative AIs, all of these deep fake technologies, they haven't still quite become good enough to fool us. So we certainly love seeing these things as clickbait and, you know, we'll spot all sorts of things and we'll follow things online, which are interesting and fun and salacious. But on the whole, we realize that they're fake. So take, for example, the porn industry, where people put deep fakes of celebrities' heads on porn actors. You can see very clearly that this is utter nonsense. I think there was a famous case with Gail Gaddo in the US, the Wonder Woman actress. There was a video released on one of these different channels, which was purportedly Gail Gaddo in a porn movie. And of course, it's utter nonsense. No one thinks that a Hollywood actress, A-list actress is going to do that. But it doesn't stop people clicking on it and watching it. But I think there is a very important distinction between clickbait and something that's salacious and things that go deep into our consciousness that we actually believe. And I still don't think that AI and deep fakes are at the point where they can properly confuse us. I wonder how long how far away that is. I was at the National Gallery of Victoria, a great art gallery in Melbourne in Australia recently, and we're looking at some of the artwork. And then there was one big piece that was, you know, the size of a normal house wall. And 
were looking at it for quite some time and I was explaining to my son, I said, this is quite interesting that the police appear to be protesting with the protesters and it was set in Victoria. You could see the Federation Square, the main square in Melbourne in the background. So it was clearly in Melbourne. And I went, this is quite strange. I can't work out why the police are pushing with the protesters. And it was artwork nonetheless, but it was a clear photo. And we're looking at it, we're looking at it. And then it took me a while to realise, mate, hold on, those police badges aren't quite right. And then you sort of look a little bit closer and go, hold on, those aren't words in the background. Hold on. As you say, I, and then of course, and then we read the description on the side and sure enough, all the images in that part of the exhibition. But it took us a while. It took us a real while to work out that this is a fake. And of course, that's what the artist was trying to achieve. But it does make you go, ooh, that wouldn't be long before they could make that look very legitimate. I think that's right. Images, of course, are very susceptible to this. So there's some examples of when there were riots breaking out in purportedly Baltimore, I think it was, about 15 years ago. Uh, There were lots of images and pictures being sent around on social. And everyone was like, look, my goodness, there's obviously big problems happening there. And it turned out the pictures were taken from somewhere completely different in a completely different year. And so we can definitely be fooled, I think, by images. But when it comes to the decision making that we have on the back of that, I still think that we have enough sentience and enough processing power as humans to sit and go, okay, let's just check and make sure we think that this is right. If it's meaningful and we're taking an action based on it, rather than just being salacious or an art gallery, then I think we've still got the power to second guess and overcome the deep fakes. And one of the conversations I regularly have when working with big businesses in Europe, especially when they're dealing with a crisis, is words that often come out of my mouth are around about encouraging transparency, encouraging authenticity, and really just being an open book with what's occurred, how the company's working to resolve the crisis, and what the company commits to moving forward. But I recognize that's not always the advice people give. And I'm really keen to hear your advice and how you think individuals and organizations should balance creating and contributing to a positive reputation with transparency and authenticity? It's a very nuanced question, and I'm going to have to give some form of a nuanced answer. Because without a doubt, if you are seen as lacking transparency in the face of a reasonable set of questions, that can be very damaging for your reputation. You can be perceived to be hiding something. You can be perceived to be inauthentic. You can be perceived to be problematic as an organization. However, what's interesting is that too much transparency or hyper-transparency can often be um, really quite damaging for you. So a couple of examples, if you're in an organization where there are serious research and development or innovation strategies inside the business, being hyper-transparent about where you've got to in your research, I think could be really quite problematic for you. It can release trademark secrets, et cetera, et cetera. And so balancing what's reasonable in terms of transparency is important in that. And then also, I think hyper-transparency when it comes to issues relating to corporate character, I think can sometimes be really problematic. Now, I talk to my students all the time about this distinction between perceptions of capability and perceptions of character, a really important distinction when it comes to reputation. So an organization may have great products, but it may be poor corporate character. And equally, an organization may have great corporate character, but just be incapable of creating some of the right products. So this perceptions of capability and character is a really nice way to distinguish reputation capital. If you think about character and transparency, how far should you go in explaining that a chief executive is human? 
and they have certain problems going on at home. They have an ill child, for example, their marriage is breaking down. Are these things that should be released? They should be made transparent within a corporate structure. They clearly could have some implication as to way in which that chief executive is able to perform their duties. It certainly may influence their attentiveness or their ability to do their job. But there's a big question in my mind as to whether hypertransparency actually is in anyone's interest in that particular setting. So I think the question of transparency is around what's reasonable transparency in the context of what the organization is doing. Authenticity, your other point, is slightly different. You can be super transparent and deeply inauthentic, and you can be deeply authentic and super non-transparent. So the two actually don't necessarily go hand in hand. Authenticity as well is one of these subjects which I think deserves a lot of attention because everyone uses this word, let's be authentic, and splashes it around as if it's an easy thing to do. But the real questions are not quite as black and white. So for example, when you go to a Mexican restaurant and it says it's a tapas Mexican restaurant, how do you know it is a Mexican restaurant? rather than just something that says it's a Mexican restaurant served by someone who's been trained in London or someone who's been trained in Leeds or someone who's been trained in Liverpool. Not a single Mexican anywhere in the premises, right? And yet you think of this as an authentic Mexican restaurant. So what does authenticity mean in that respect? And does it matter? Does it matter that we think that the chef is from Liverpool and that the ingredients are from Leeds? Does that make it inauthentic? Well, it's an interesting question. I think the question of where inauthenticity and reputation merge is where you have perceived wrongdoing or lies. When people are either greenwashing, green hushing, blue washing, purple washing, any of these washings or hushings that are going on, that's when you have a very clear link between reputations and authenticity. And for that, I'll bring us straight back to where we started, perhaps, which is to remember this link back to purpose, which is that if you start to claim certain things, for example, about your EDI strategies, right, your equality and diversity and inclusion, but yet your purpose as an organization doesn't really care about that, then I think that's when people start to think that that commitments being made are perhaps a little bit inauthentic, and that causes reputational harm. So we've discussed some of the positive aspects, including our behavior signals, we've considered the narratives and our networks, and we've also considered some of the challenges and negative elements. I wonder if it might also be valuable to explore an empty slate. What advice do you give to new companies that are trying to build a narrative around their reputation in a market that's already saturated with information and white noise? Well, it's a lovely question. And you may expect me to come to this particular starting point. But I think it's worthwhile organisations at that super exciting time when they're doing everything to set the business up is to make sure that they can articulate very clearly their why their purpose. And most startup organizations do that really well, because they start with why am I doing this in the first place? And actually, they've got the ability to then really authentically tie their reason to exist to how they operate, their commitments that they make in any ESG space, and the reputation flows from that are normally really, really, really strong and positive. You do, however, of course, get organizations that set up and they try and pull the wool over people's eyes. You get bad actors who set up companies that try to defraud people. And they're ones where any careful kind of analysis would normally spot that difference between what the stated purpose is and the actual observed behaviors of the organization. The The thing that I think is perhaps most relevant to startups, I come back to this point on legitimacy rather than reputation. I mean, I think establishing yourself early on as being legitimate in your chosen space is a very valuable thing to do. Yep. Being legitimate in your chosen space certainly is a good place to start. I think it's more than good. I mean, it feels to me that it's necessary. If you are a medical 
devices company startup. People need to think that you actually have the expertise and that you have the wherewithal to do the medical devices technologies. Otherwise, no one's going to believe that you've got products that are worth anything. So this quest for legitimacy is actually a really important step one for entrepreneurs. And the good ones know that and they do it really well. One of the topics that I continually and I really encourage companies that are going through crisis and navigating it when I'm working with the crisis management team is really to explain to them that, you know, yes, this is a challenge. We're a crisis management team. We've been formed for a reason because there is a big problem, potentially an existential crisis to the organization. But this is also an opportunity to emerge stronger. It's an opportunity to build back better, to identify errors, issues, problems, mistakes, things that could have been done better, and to come out as an even better company with better processes, better people, better products, better systems because of the crisis. Yes, there's a problem and we have to fix that, but we can come out of this and your company can come out of this even better. And quite often we see that is legitimately and genuinely the case. I wonder if you see the same from reputation or if you've got examples of where companies have effectively navigated what might be called a reputation challenge or a reputation crisis and actually come out of it stronger because of how they've handled the situation. So crises are really interesting. And I'll distinguish between crises and scandals as well, by the way, because they're both different. But both are interesting for lots of reasons. I mean, the first thing is that the way in which you handle a crisis is often the most important diagnostic. And whenever I've spent time with organizations either going through crises or trying to learn from their crises, we normally start with some analysis of what happened in the first few minutes, few hours, few days of the crisis. And it's often, well, I liken it to a five-year-old football game where everyone starts in their nominated position and the ball's in the middle. But as soon as the whistle goes, everyone runs into one place. Everyone's trying to work out what's happening to the ball and no one stays in position. And I think that's a lovely metaphor for what tends to happen in a crisis. Everyone rushes to the next piece of information, what's happening, and they forget to man mark their existing responsibilities. So often I think crises can be exacerbated by not having good governance and good structures and good preparedness. But the really big insight, I think, when it comes to crisis, crisis comes back to this very important distinction between perceptions of capability and perceptions of character. So if you think about some of the biggest corporate crises that we've seen in recent years, if you think about VW and its emissions scandal, if you think about BP and the Macondo explosion, if you think about Boeing and the Max 737 crises, right? Each of those three crises really boils down to analyzing carefully whether or not you're dealing with perceptions of capability or perceptions of character. So let's start with VW. VW and the emissions scandal, that was really a perception of poor character, right? Because no one was questioning that they could make bad cars or good cars. Arguably, actually, the way they managed to defeat the regulators or evade the regulators actually, strangely, might have improved the perception of capability that they have. But for sure, this was a question of poor corporate culture, poor corporate character. This was an organization prepared to lie consistently for nine years to customers, regulators, and others about what they were doing on this emissions theme. Uh, Boeing, the Boeing 737 MAX case, again, you know, principally a character problem for them because the issue is that they knew that there was perhaps training needed for the pilots, but they also knew that actually that if they put training as a requirement into the new Boeing package, that that would put off a lot of buyers from buying the aircraft. So these are two great examples of character. And BP, BP an element of capability because one should expect that an oil company should be able to drill safely into the bottom of an ocean and not blow something up. But actually a lot of the criticism of BP emerged from the way in which 
which they then handled the case. You know, Tony Hayward, the chief executive of the time, saying he wanted his life back, standing on a beach in Louisiana, going sailing in the south coast of Britain when the oil was still flowing in the Gulf of Mexico. These are perceptions of poor corporate character. And the reason I mentioned this distinction between capability and character is that if you are not clear about which dimension it is that is being scrutinized and under threat, then you can respond to crises very, very poorly. If you're clear that it's a capability problem, fix the capability issue, right? Mend the hole in the ground. Tylenol, for example, the famous 1982 recall case, take all the product off the shelf, put safety first and replace the Tylenol capsules. If it's a character problem, then you've really got to deal with the question of the individuals who were the bad apples in that. It's why you tend to see that the only reputational strategy that works in a character crisis is to remove people at the senior parts of the organization. So Martin Winterkorn went at VW, Tony Hayward went at BP, and the chief executive, Dennis Muhlenberg, went at Boeing. And it's that bloodletting that needs to happen at senior levels, which allows observers from outside and within the organization to go, OK, we've now learned, we've moved on from the bad character, and we're now a good character company again. I like that differentiation. It's a super, super dynamic and valuable thing. You could also apply it to your friends and your family. I'm not sure I'd recommend it, but you can take a think about some of your friends where you think they're highly capable at something, but I wouldn't want to spend time with them, or I'd love them to pieces, but they're a bit hopeless. And we've all got those friends, right? And people will be saying that about us too. So this forensic ability to think about perceptions of capability and perceptions of character is valuable across many dimensions, corporate and personal. No, definitely. Fantastic. Thanks for explaining that, Rupert. And I understand you might be about to release a new book called Defense Against the Dark Arts. What insights can you give us into that new read? So yeah, that's just been submitted. And I won't say too much about it. But essentially, you've talked a bit in this conversation that we're having around the bad actors, the dark side. And like you, I'd be very interested in reputations and reputation capital, both for good, but also for bad. So how and why do bad people use reputation for their purposes? And what drove me to think about this book is both a modern and a very old phenomenon. So the modern phenomenon being trolling online and people who are extraordinarily problematic in the way they will attack people. Very nasty platforms, X in particular, very nasty platforms where people say extraordinarily dangerous and damaging things about people. And it struck me that this was a phenomenon worth exploring. And as I looked at it, I looked back again, back to Cicero and others and saw that actually that the concept of how individuals have used character attacks to achieve outcomes has a very long tail. So I took a look at that question about the long tail of character assassins. And the book is really addressing who are your haters and what can you do about it? And I won't say any more about it for now. Well, the long tail of character assassins, that sounds like another great title of a book, but I look forward to unpacking that when that's released. And Rupert, one question we always finish on with our guests is when you look around the world and whether it's when you're lecturing with your students or whether it's having a conversation with your family on a Sunday night, what are the risks around the world that concern you the most? Intolerance. That's the thing that worries me most. The lack of our willingness to embrace and listen to the views of others. I think you can achieve an enormous amount if we're slightly more tolerant. Listening, it's such an underrated skill, isn't it? Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Rupert. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, Dominic. 
Well, that was Rupert Younger, the founder and director of Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation. It was great to have him on the podcast today to unpack a variety of issues related to reputations. Today's podcast was coordinated and produced by Ben Lawson. I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will speak again next week. You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast, hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.